Uh, I just want to say thanks to uh, Peggy and Linda and Greg and the Vestry for allowing me to share with you guys tonight. It's a huge blessing and a privilege to do that. Uh, And just for those of you that know my background, uh, I come from an evangelical church, and so I guess the light show tonight is to make me feel at home. (laughs) So maybe there'll be a rock band later and some smoke machines. So... Well, tonight we're talking about John 12, as we read in the Gospel, and this reading takes place in the uh, festival of Passover. And so Passover is one of three Jewish festivals in which the entire population would go to Jerusalem to celebrate and worship in the temple. And so if I could paint a picture for you for what this is like, this is very similar to a big tailgate party that's all over the city of Conway, going on at the same time. Lots of fun. And so this is the setting in which Jesus shows up and the crowds go crazy, right? We read that a few days ago. In Psalm 118, they were even quoting that psalm as he rides in and he's declaring that he is this king that's been long expected and they're saying things like, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they say, even the king of Israel. That's a big deal. Everyone was feeling the energy, the momentum, and the anticipation because Jesus was here. Everyone except the Pharisees. They were not real excited about this event. In fact, just a few verses before this, they were lamenting that the whole world had become infatuated with Jesus. You see, in just three short years of his public ministry, Jesus turned the hearts away from the law and religion that kept people emotionally and spiritually in bondage and they found liberty in the gospel that he was bringing in his life. They were so fearful of of sort of retaliation from the Romans because they knew that the talk that Jesus' followers had that there was a new kingdom coming and a new ruler would threaten their power. And they would be the ones because they saw Jesus as part of the Jewish community who would feel the brunt of that frustration. Yet in the middle of all that, there was conversations going on and people were whispering, some not whispering, and they're saying things like, could he be the Messiah, the one that we've waited for for so long? That was not good news to the ruling Jews. And now in John 20, uh, 12, 20, we see Gentiles showing up and requesting an audience with Jesus. The Gentiles. Now, I don't, I'm not trying to be funny, but the only thing I could think of in our culture today that would be as scandalous as this is if a gaggle of drag queens showed up at Mike and Karen Pence's house for cocktail hour. This was unheard of. This was a clutching your pearls moment. But yet the Gentiles were there. And they come up and ask Philip, who then asked Andrew to arrange the meeting. And I'm sure that these disciples were astonished that Jesus had stirred up even these Gentiles. And they find Jesus in this crowd of people. He's talking. They come up to him. They pull him aside and they say, Jesus, there's Gentiles over here. And you need to do something. This is crazy. You need to go talk to them. And then in a message, most of my scripture reading in the text of my sermon today will be from the message. Jesus says these words, and I want you to pay very close attention to them. He says, listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never any more that a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. 
In the same way, anyone who holds on to life just as it is destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. Then in verse 26, he says, If any of you wants to serve me, follow me. If you do, then you'll be where I am, ready to serve at a moment's notice, and the Father will honor and reward everyone who serves me. And remember, the context is this is a big party. Those words, honestly, kind of a buzzkill. Not fun. I don't know what, pe- what the people were thinking. I don't know what Philip and Andrew thought would be happening, but I'm pretty sure this is not the speech that they expected Jesus to give. They were looking for Jesus to do something Messiah-like. After all, he had just raised a guy from the dead a couple of days ago. This reference to death, the context of this passage, are some of the hardest, most difficult words Jesus ever spoke in the Gospels. He unveils some really difficult truth about who he is and what his true mission has always been and the cost for those of us who want to follow him. And when we look at this passage, there are a couple of things I want to point out. The first thing is, Jesus' words are both very difficult to hear, but they promise a greater reward. Just think about these four words that I'm going to share. These four power words that are in this particular reading. Death, hate, follow, serve. Those are words that don't carry an immediate positive reaction. Thankfully, though, hidden in these difficult words are some words that offer promise and hope. I want to look at these individually. The first one is the word death. Jesus says that a grain of wheat must die. Death is hard. If you've ever lost a loved one, or if you've ever faced death yourself, you know that it is one of the most traumatic experiences you can ever go through. It's interesting, as I was getting ready for this message, I thought about seeing this played out on a national level in France today. There is a national grief that is going on at the destruction of the great cathedral in Notre Dame. And the nation is grieving because this is as much part of France as the Eiffel Tower. It's part of their corporate and cultural identity. And to see this thing implode and that spire go down, you're seeing people as a nation deal with the pain of loss. Death is hard. A grain of wheat must die, Jesus says. But the reality is that in the death, there's much fruit. You see, death always produces some type of blessing and can lead to life if we choose to let it. Jesus tells these people that losing something they love is a path to getting the greatest love of all. And this reminds me from Jesus' words in the Beatitudes. I saw a wonderful parallel about the first sermon Jesus delivered and the last thing that he said. In Matthew 5, he says, You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel, hmm, you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You see, Jesus knows that it's in the space of loss, grief, death, that the Holy Spirit has room to move, to work, and comfort. 
Death produces blessing. Jesus also calls us to hate our lives in this world. Hate. Are we not intimately acquainted in our culture with the word hate right now? Hate is divisive. It's cruel and it's toxic. And in the word in the Greek here means to detest or be repulsed by. And honestly, as I work through this passage, it is the one word that I struggle the most with. You know, as a person who lived the first 45 years of his life in fear of a God who repeatedly was told, told me that he hated me because of my sexual orientation, I know what it's like to experience hatred at a deep level, not just externally towards me, but internally towards the way that I was. The things that I wake up in the morning, does Jesus here really tell me that when I hit my knees and I thank God for the good things in my life, my family, my friends, this church, my freedom, my recovery, am I supposed to hate those things? It's a hard reality. I think the words here found a few verses later in 30 through 33 help us understand some context because Jesus talks about defeating the ruler of this world. It's the same word that he calls us to hate. And I think that Jesus is calling us to detest and let go of a system in this culture by which we operate and exchange the operating system of this world for an operating system based in the economy of grace, which is God's way of doing things. But I still can't take the sting out of the word hate. Hating something is a form of denial. You separate from it. And denial creates abundance for God. Again, I'm reminded of Jesus' words in the Beatitudes. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more and no less. That's the moment when you find yourself proud owners of everything that can't be bought. What a blessing that is. Jesus tells this crowd that there is a peace and a blessing that comes when we realize that we already have everything we need to be happy. They were looking for a king. They wanted Jesus to fit their agenda. Their agenda had to die. They already had what they needed to be free. Death produces blessing. Denial creates abundance. Then Jesus calls us to follow him, but specifically he says, follow me on a road that leads to the cross and death. That's hard. Who wants to be a follower in this world? Don't we all want to be leaders? Isn't that what the world tells us, that you can be a leader? Isn't that what it means to be an American? We're supposed to be leaders? Rugged individualism? You know? That's who we're supposed to be. Jesus says, no, the way to follow, the way to follow. You see, the payoff for following, I love this, is proximity to the Father. It's proximity to the Father. Jesus tells them it's not leadership, it's not aggression, it's not wealth, it's not importance or power or self-will that produces God proximity. It is only a willingness to follow and do the will of God. That's why Jesus' example falls in the last part of this passage where he literally says, not my will but yours be done. And that's the heart 
of another section in Matthew's Beatitudes where Jesus says, you're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourself cared for. When we care for God, when we follow Him, we want what He wants for us. When we want the things that He loves, we can experience Him and hunger for His ways, thirst for His heart and His life, and at that very moment, something incredible happens. We receive the care that He has for us. Death produces blessing. Denial creates abundance. Following results in proximity, and then He talks about service. He calls us to a position of servitude. And again, just like following, who's signing up for that today? Are we not told over and over again that we are the center of our own universe? Yet Jesus calls us to servitude. He tells the crowd that death is where he's headed. He tells them that they have to stop finding delight in a life strategy that is fundamentally flawed to the extent it seems as if we hate it. He says we must follow him on his journey to crucifixion. He concludes that we must also become a servant. What a buzzkill this guy is. Not very Messiah-like. You see, Jesus knows that taking the position of a servant ensures being honored by his heavenly Father. When we live a life that Jesus calls us to live, we will be very different people who are not defined by what we are against, but we are defined by whom we love. The world will see that love and whom we choose to love as a weakness, and I guarantee you they will exploit it. They'll make fun of it. They'll ridicule it. That's what he calls us to do. Jesus ends his speech in Matthew 5 by telling the crowd that as we embrace this God life and live and love differently from the way that the world lives and loves, God's truth will be like a beacon and you cannot ignore it. I love this. He says, what it means is that the truth is too close to home, too close for comfort, and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when it happens. Give a cheer, he says, for even though they don't like it, Here's the honor part. Jesus says, I do. I do. The promise is that humility produces honor in God's kingdom. That is some really good news. Death produces blessing. Denial creates abundance. Following results in proximity, humility brings honor. These are all outgrowths of two powerful principles at work. In conclusion, I'll share these with you. The first one, God's kingdom functions on an inverse economy. God's kingdom functions on an inverse economy. Earlier tonight, we read 1 Corinthians, and it talks about God taking the wisdom of this world, the world that Jesus just called us to hate, and he renders it as foolishness. The world expects people to be powerful, forceful, aggressive. Not only does God not value these characteristics, he openly and aggressively opposes them. The character traits that God does value, those are mentioned all throughout Scripture, like Micah 6, 8. He says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. I think those are the things and the concepts, this understanding that God's economy functions 
inversely to ours. It's what drove Paul to say, God's strength is perfected in our weaknesses. I truly believe that God has room to work inside the lives of those who feel like they have the least to offer. Secondly, Jesus tells us the truth about himself. And that truth becomes incarnation within us. Jesus shares his mission, and then he turns around and charges us with that mission as well. The promise of Jesus is the promise of incarnation. Divine God made flesh and blood. It's the promise of incarnation that is our promise and the call for us today. Has Jesus lived and died, serving others, loving others, so are we to live and to die. Our call is to be the incarnation of God to a world who values the very things that bring about its own destruction and corruption. Many of you know, if you know my story, you know that I'm a recovering addict. So part of my story involves a, con a conversation I had while I was in treatment at a treatment center outside of Dallas in 2009 with my psychiatrist. When we discussed my life, and specifically the consequences of my addiction, I commented to him in tears that I felt like I had killed every dream and every hope that I've ever held dear. And this man, who was a former Methodist minister, was so wise. In a Louisiana drawl, he leaned his chair in and looked me straight in the face, and he said, Well, there is always a painful death and burial before a glorious resurrection, Shane. So it's Holy Week. I wonder where we need to experience a type of death. Is it in an area of ego, maybe pride, self-will, materialism? Maybe we need to see a crucifixion in our own lives of self-seeking. Maybe we're fearful, fearing failure, fearing rejection, fearing abandonment. Maybe some of us in this very room struggle with issues around addiction or alcoholism. We tell ourselves we got it under control. What about anger, resentment? Are there areas in our lives today that are barriers to the road to resurrection? My challenge to us tonight, don't take a shortcut to Resurrection Sunday. May we choose the hard words of Christ. May we lean into our pain, lean into the call to no longer value this world system, which so clearly is not delivering what it promises. Resurrection Sunday's coming. But the work that we're called to do right now is to embrace our own personal crucifixions. It is not an easy choice to make. But the result is that it leads to a full life that draws other people to Christ. Amen.